Welcome to the Ripe Labs podcast. I'm Alan Davies, the Ripe Labs editor, and in each of these episodes, I'll be talking to people from all across the technical community about the work they do to keep the internet running. The difference between men and women at the meeting is so great that it shows something, I think, really wrong about the way we're doing things and about how, how, we, how we get new members to participate. Women in tech sessions became an important part of RIPE meetings five years ago at RIPE 75. As part of a broader effort to promote diversity in the community, the idea was to have a session open to everyone that focused on raising awareness of the work women in tech do, to discuss the various barriers they face, and to share experiences and best practices to help overcome those barriers. After a two-year break due to COVID, the Women in Tech session was back at RIPE 84. This time, the topic was the gender data gap. Lorraine Porchinkula, Executive Director of the Datasphere Initiative, joined us online to present on a responsible approach to interpreting gender data and dealing with the gender data gap. Also during the session, Shane Kerr talked about his efforts to measure gender diversity at right meetings. Shane himself has been a familiar face at right meetings for some time, having gotten involved with internet organizations back when he worked at Arian as a software engineer. He's now DNS software developer at NS1 and co-chair of the DNS working group. In this episode, my colleague Anastasia Pack caught up with Shane after his talk to find out more about gender diversity at right meetings. One thing to note, as you'll hear, Shane talks about the Diversity Task Force. It's worth pointing out that shortly after this recording, RIPE Chair Miriam Kuna proposed to hand back the work of this task force to the community. You can get more information on that in the show notes. So do go and take a look if you want to learn more. Hi, Shane. Hello. Thank you for making time in this busy RIPE 84 schedule for us. Today we had Women in Tech session and it was I think, really great and there was a good discussion in there. Can you please tell me a bit more what was it about? Yeah, so the Women in Tech session in particular is sort of evolution of net girls lunches. And these are women in the industry who would attend RIPE meetings and other things and would get together and just have a lunch to talk about their issues. And at some point, someone realized that maybe this should be expanded to not just be an exclusive thing, not women supporting each other, which is useful and important, but in the context of RIPE to have a more, a wider discussion. So the Women in Tech Lunch is, is not only for women in tech, it's about women in tech. Um, and this one in particular, the focus was chosen to be on data. I have in the past done work trying to figure out the representation of women in the RIPE community at the meetings. Um, they asked me to come and talk about that and give some revised work that I'd done. Basically, the real question was, what was the impact of COVID on, on uh, women in attending the RIPE meeting? So you spoke about the gender statistics, right? Can you please summarize a little bit for us? What was your main conclusion? Yeah, so the, the, the goal is to see over time how we're doing. RIPE has a task force, the diversity task force, and the goal is to improve the diversity of the RIPE community. And so the question that we want to be able to answer is how are we doing at our job? My goal in general was to establish a kind of baseline, and then we could track it over time to see 
how effective the initiatives that we had were. Now, I did a little bit of work and I set that up and then it happened to be available to check that data in the context of COVID and see what, what difference that made. And uh, can you please tell us a little bit more about your approach? Because it was not a very conventional approach in analyzing the data on gender. We started with the question of, of we started with the perception that, yes, there aren't very many women at the right meetings relative to men, right? And But the problem is perceptions can be skewed. And you're seeing things that may not be there, or it could be way worse than you think they are. So we, if we could measure it, that would be helpful. And we had some discussions. And nowadays, if you go to the right meeting, there's an entry on the form when you sign up for the meeting that says, what, uh, what's your gender? And you can choose several top co- categories. It's not strictly binary, man or woman. It's also, um, you can say you prefer not to say, you can say non-binary, you can say, and you can put in whatever you want. There's a blank category. And that's actually even gonna be revised further in the next meeting to allow you to choose multiple options. That's great, but that doesn't give us a historical view because we only started adding that a few years ago and we wanted to know how are we doing compared to the past. So the question is, how do you know, uh, before we started asking the questions, how many many women are attending? So I realized that the list of attendees for right meeting is public data and that is available for all past meetings. And right, right meetings have been going on since 1989 so it's quite a long list. There's one meeting that's not that we don't have the data for. I don't know why, but basically it's mostly there. And so I just said, okay, let's look at the list and see. Now you can look at the list in, in the early meetings, and you know you can figure out from the 20 people who they were. And over time, but over time we have at the COVID meetings recently we had over a thousand people attend, and there's no way a human can go through those lists and figure it out. So basically the the idea was, okay, let's look at the first name of the people attending and try to figure out whether it's a man or a woman. It's not a perfect measure, yeah. but it's better than nothing, which is why it was chosen. That was, the, that was the approach I took. Because it's such a long history, those meeting lists were originally written by hand on a piece of paper and then typed in, and later on that evolved. So the records are not always perfect, but they're, per, they're good enough for this purpose. As we speak about the accuracy of data, you mentioned in your presentation that in some countries, one name can be considered a male name and the other a female name, which can complicate the analysis. Also, you mentioned that uh, when registering to the meeting, many people use their nicknames that makes it impossible to identify their gender. Can you please elaborate on that? Well, you see it in the historical data too. Some people would... They, use their last name so they would put like a uh like you can put a cock and it's like is that andrea is that andy is that is that who knows right um so that's always been a problem with the data now in the more recent meetings the online meetings uh, that that were caused because of covid um we have no way to know if people entered in anything like their real name they could have put an alias um so it's just another confusion and already somewhat confusing data. Yeah, but I think like based on what we saw actually in the graph that you presented, it was still visible that we could see some trends and it, the, the participation was still growing and in comparison to the first meetings where we could see almost no women there. Yeah. You said, I'm not a data analyst, I'm just some guy. Can you please uh, tell us a bit more who you are and why are you actually interested in this? Sure. I was actually really nervous when I when I was first contacted to do this because it was explained, yes, we have this researcher who studies data 
and has written books and all this stuff. And I was thinking, I'm not a data scientist. This is going to look like real weak sauce <laughs> compared to, to anything she's presenting. But okay, I, I decided to go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, yeah. So, like I said, I'm not a I'm not a data scientist. I'm a a programmer. I'm a, a DNS professional. That's my main my main gig. I have been participating in the Ripe community for a long time. And I was a, actually a Ripe NCC staff member starting 22 years ago. And then I worked for five years or so in that. I really like the, the meetings. I like the community. I think it does good work in bringing people together and, and sharing interesting bits about the technology and market trends and all that kind of stuff. And the connections between people, it's great. And like I said, we've been having conversations with within the community leadership, by which I mean uh, the program committee, uh, working group chairs, the RIPE chair, and also key RIPE's NCC staff about this issue that we'd all noticed that there, weren't, there wasn't enough diversity. There weren't many women attending. I thought, and we had this gap of data, and I'm a programmer. I can parse things. I can crunch numbers. I can make a graph. I figured it's not going to be great. And if a real data scientist wants to correct me and show me the right way to do it later, awesome. But no one's doing anything. Something is better than nothing. So I just uh, opened an editor and started writing Python code. And this is what happened. I think yeah, you opened like a big avenue actually for the exploration because your code is online and open source data. So people can just use it and then continue developing it and maybe see something completely I, shocking yeah I, I hope so but to be honest this this my i mean i've been fixing the code and extending it over the years it's been i guess five years now or something since i started and um, i don't see much interest i saw a lot of initial in, interest when i did the initial presentation and discussed it with the community um, that's when i was contacted by all these various other organizations people from ICANN and APNIC and that kind of thing, IETF. And I was hoping that at the time, these people who had interest would then pick up the code and start doing their own research. I worry that everyone has interest in this data, in this data in improving the diversity of their communities, but people don't have the time. And probably a lot of people don't have the skills either. Like I said, I'm not skilled in this stuff, but I am a programmer, right? So it's yeah. I'm not afraid of this. But if if I was a network engineer, it would be harder for me to approach that because it just it's not not their kind of work, right? I'm not sure how to get answers to the questions that a lot of the people at the meeting today yeah. had. I, I find their suggestions really interesting, yeah. and I would like to know the answer to those questions too, but it's going to take someone with time to do it. Well, let's hope that someone would eventually pick it up. I hope so. I'm thinking, we talk about data, and data is maybe not always precise, but it gives us the trends. I think a lot of people just tend to trust the data. But I think people also trust other people like themselves, you know. So you said you've been in the community for over 20 years. You've probably been in many and if not in almost all the meetings that have been passing uh, towards many of them. Did you like observe this trend that the community is becoming more diverse from years to years? When I was on the PC, the program committee, we struggled to get presentations by women. And we said at every meeting that we're going to make an effort to try to 
approach more women to present and so on, get people from other than our usual people. So like there's a lot of Germans, even at the meetings that aren't in Berlin, there's not quite so many Portuguese people, right? And so we thought we'd try to improve the diversity. Um, but I'll be honest, with all the best intentions, we didn't have much success. This is one of the areas where you can try to look at the presenters, but it's also the same today. It's men presenters in the main plenary track. Have we had progress? I don't know. I, I don't feel like there has been a lot. Now, I did notice that a lot of the people talking at the microphone, um, yesterday especially, um, were women, and that was great. But I'm not, I, don't, I don't know that we've actually seen progress. There are areas where we, and I think we'll talk about that in a bit, there are areas where we've made specific changes which we hope will encourage people to attend and to participate. But I don't, I don't feel like it's been fruitful yet. And I think the numbers bear that out. I think actually it brings us a little bit to the discussion that we had today and people were saying we need to maybe move on from talking about diversity but talk more about the inclusion meaning the participation sometimes like we just do oh let's just invite more women you know so that the statistics shows that diversity and i'm not talking about women of course like people of different identities but then is it actually a meaningful participation so i guess there's two things to that first of all the presumption which is probably not correct but maybe it is is that there's a sort of life cycle to a participant. So you start off and you show up and you attend and you don't know anything that's going on and you learn about it and it's really interesting for you. And if, if, if it's useful to you in your work or you just find it interesting because of personal interest, then maybe you'll come back. And after a couple of these, you might submit a talk for the plenary or for a working group that you're interested in. And um, if that gets accepted, people will know you and they'll start to get excited about what you're doing. And then after a couple more years, maybe you'll volunteer for the program committee. This is the idea, right? And so the idea is that if we get women to attend, they'll go through it. Now, there's no reason that that's naturally true, right? If, if I attend the meeting, because I feel that they're, that they're welcoming to the meeting, but all of the people um, organizing the work are men, I maybe feel like that's not for me. That's, that's something that another group of people that is not me is responsible for. Now, at the IETF a few years ago, they had a, a discussion about women and diversity in general. And they did a few things for it, uh, some of which were more effective and others, some of which were not. Now, they did similar to, to the right meeting, which is where they started ask, asking attendees to IETFs for their gender. And that data is not public. I did ask for that at one point and got access to it. But basically, all that did was give them some data they could track the trends. And I looked at the trends, and they're not great. Like because that doesn't all because you're looking at it doesn't mean it's going to change. Um, now they also did an effort where they wanted to get more women involved in the leadership roles of their organization, and that actually went really well. So within the IAB, which is uh, one of their bodies within the organ, they're a standards-making organization, right? Their leadership roles actually did get quite diverse. And that was pretty pretty nice to see. Maybe we could do an effort like that within Ripe and try to encourage uh, women and people from underrepresented groups to come on and don't be scared and yeah. I think that maybe some people might find it offensive. Why are we talking just men and women? But at the same time, if we only look at the binary construct, right? There's still 
the gap is so huge. Like the underrepresentation, it's so many, you know, so prominent. My thought is like, yeah, we don't want to offend anyone. We want to be inclusive, want to be ethical. But do you think most people agree that yes, we do need this data on men and women and to reach the diversity? And if yes, what is our goal? What are we aiming for? So the last question at our at the Women in Tech talk was about about this very issue and. I was kind of dreading it because I don't have a good answer. I decided to collect the data that I did, not because it's the best data, but because it's the easiest data to get. Now, I think you're right in that the difference between men and women at the meeting is so great that it shows something, I think, really wrong about the way we're doing things and about how, how we how we get new members to participate. I think you're right in that because it's because it's so stark and the numbers are so bad, that tells us something. And it's I think from that point of view, it's still useful. If the numbers started to get confusing, like, well, is it we have almost half women or we we're more than half, but we're not sure, is it a lot more or is it less? And then we could say, all right, we're happy with the, with the state of the situation there. Now we can dig into other things that are maybe harder to get to now because it's taken so long to get any improvement in the way women have, are participating maybe it is worth it to start digging into other issues like people that don't feel uh, comfortable identifying as men or women and figure out how they fit into into right but then yeah i mean this is the trend that reflects not just the right meeting it's the trend that reflects the generally women in tech representation in the whole world absolutely if we speak more about gender data and diversity, it's very valuable, right, to have the data that pre- represents the global population. I want to like maybe touch upon the topic of social political landscape of the countries that we are looking at, because I'm coming from Uzbekistan. It's a, quite a conservative society with a very binary norms on gender. So, and men are actually known to be the ones who are working in tech and if women are in the tech companies they are not really taking the very technical roles but then like you brought an example of the um, rep meeting in dubai and we saw there was a very slight but still higher rate of uh, women participants so uh, do you think it could be somehow connected to the fact that the perception of gender there is quite binary so that women do report that they are women, you know, like in this, uh, sorry, like I don't want to like offend anyone, but. Um, I'll be honest, I was very surprised at the number of women at, at that meeting um, because my perception, possibly completely wrong in advance, is that women have a hard time in the Middle East and that they don't have the same freedom of movement and they don't get the same access to education and things like that that are afforded to men in any particular country. Yeah, the numbers showed us that, that there were a lot of women there. Um, I'm not, I can only speculate as to why that is, but perhaps it's because academics were interested in coming to the meeting. Uh, I think academics usually have a better gender balance than most other areas, just because being smart has nothing to do with whether you're a man or a woman. So if you're going to be successful as an academic, it's I agree. just, yeah, it's just, so, at that level, maybe maybe there's more of an of a even balance. And 
if you're if you're an academic in the Middle East, it's often quite difficult to travel to meetings that are in the EU or or Western Europe in general. I, I think we saw that a lot in that meeting that there were a lot of people who didn't have an easy time traveling to Western Europe, and were very happy to have a meeting in in that region. And maybe that was that gave a lot more people just of all strikes, a truly diverse meeting uh, ability to come. So you've actually been to the meeting physically as well, right? I did. This was, I think there were two meetings in Dubai, um, and I have mixed feelings about it. The mirror image of, of what we saw was that it was very, very easy for a lot of people to go to this meeting that couldn't come to Western Europe. It was also very difficult for people to go to the meeting in Dubai um, that would normally come to one in Berlin or, or Amsterdam or whatever. There's not a lot of cities where we've had multiple meetings. So if you're looking for a data trend, if you have two meetings in a city, you can draw a line, but that doesn't... Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, the one exception to that is in Amsterdam. We've had... It used to be that like one right meeting a year or even two was in Amsterdam. So there were a lot of meetings there, and you can kind of see more of a trend in that in that country in particular. I didn't mention it during my talk, but the Netherlands is a surprisingly sexist country. There's very defined men and women roles for a lot of things. As a kind of very gender split country, if if you look at the trends, it's going good in in the Netherlands. Even though of our last pre-COVID meetings of the last ten or so, the meeting in Rotterdam was one of the worst as far as women attending. But yeah. if you compare it to previous meetings in the yeah. Netherlands, it's way higher. So I don't know. I may be in trying to infer too much from the data. But. but I mean, the data speaks by itself sometimes, right? So True, <laughs> true. People were saying, but actually rep community is quite diverse in comparison to some other regional registries. You also mentioned about the diversity task force. So I want to like jump a bit more to not the history, but more to the achievements of the diversity sure. task force since it was established in 2017, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And as I mentioned, we struggled on the program committee to figure out how to get more presentations from women and things like that. But the diversity task force, which was formed in 2017, basically had a few concrete actions that we wanted to do. So in addition to the data gathering aspect of it, we have done uh, a very important thing, which has taken a long time and is finally coming to fruition, is getting a new code of conduct for the right community. It's taken a long time. I think like in many communities, there was a notion that, hey, just be nice to each other and everything's going to be fine. And I think the best practices, meeting organizers and just online communities and everything is basically like, that's not good enough. It doesn't, it doesn't make participants feel safe if they're vulnerable because that doesn't tell me that, what do I do if someone uh, harasses me? Who do I talk to if I, if I see things going wrong? So getting the new code of conduct in place, I think that's a real achievement. And it's been tricky to get done because of resistance from the community. People feel like it's... People are very resistant to it, basically old men, um, because they feel like it's going to restrict them. It's going to be used as a tool to prevent them from from uh, saying what they think and things like that. I'm obviously very in favor of it, but it has been a, a, a difficult road for the community. So that's one thing that we've gotten, and I think it's really good. Other things that we've done in the past have been uh, Ripe NCC has sponsored, or maybe not a third party to sponsor it. I can't remember. Someone sponsored a child care during the meetings, yeah. which is interesting. I don't know how helpful it's been, but there's been a lot of positive feedback. 
Well, there were a number of efforts to try to get different communities involved. So already had, Ripe NCC already had the RACI program, which is an academic, a program to get academics to attend meetings. Because it was, re it was recognized that part of the problem is cost. It's a non-trivial amount of money, and usually people would get their companies to send them, but if you can't get your company to send you, then it's, the meeting fees are not, they're not high compared to a lot of conferences because we're a meeting, we're not a, there's no profit being made. Actually, I think Brightfoot uh, subsidizes the meetings, so it's expensive. But anyway, so academics, both students and professors, are sometimes selected and given some money to, to attend the meeting, and that's good. The CEO of Ripe NCC has leeway to uh, waive the meeting fees in cases where someone can't attend who would otherwise be useful to attend. There's a mentorship program, uh, which is designed to help people as they start to help have like an old person explain to them how everything works. A lot of efforts were done. A lot of things that we had intentions to do didn't happen. So there's also ideas to reach out to um Local communities before a meeting starts, like uh, hackerspace communities or student communities or clubs or things like that, and say, hey, there's a right meeting, you can come and attend. Um, I think we're probably not as successful over there, but I guess that just means there's more to do. Our initial target was pretty simple. We want half of the people coming to the meetings to be women. Desna mentioned in the meeting today, that isn't good enough because it doesn't talk about, she mentioned inclusion, which is women actually participating other than just being there. I think we're going to have to reboot the task force a bit. And actually, because we kind of lost steam over the COVID lockdowns and everything, I think we're going to, I think a reset is both timely and okay. Of course, it's a bit about the challenges and you mentioned COVID. So I wanted to talk a bit about that. I read some article from Deloitte and they had the statistics about women in tech and they only actually looked at the large global companies. Mm. They said that on average, the global technology firms will reach nearly 33 overall female representation in their workforces in 2022. And this is slightly than like two percentage more than in comparison to 2019. But at the same time, in the same article, they say, yeah, it might get better. It, it is getting better. But there was also another report that they did that women reported that the work-life balance was quite lost during COVID and there were mm. so many challenges that the discussion is that maybe the COVID actually stopped this progress in some way. What do you think did it make for <laughs> ensuring the women participation, for better or worse? Yeah, I, you know, when COVID first hit and everything stopped, I had a small kernel of hope, actually, well, first of all, that people would stop getting sick and dying, but but also because we did things in a different way and the world didn't end. Tech companies, so my company stopped hiring as like in February of 2000 because we were terrified that all of our business was going to go away and we were going to go bankrupt and it was going to be awful. The opposite happened. Like many tech companies, they thrived because all other types of work had to go online too. So I was sort of thinking... Well, people working from home, that's great. They're going to have options. And we've seen that you don't have to fly around all the time. And maybe we won't use so much uh, gas all the time and destroy our planet. Maybe we'll love each other more and the world's going to be a better place. Now, fast forward two and a half years or two years or whatever, 
and none of that happened. And we basically just, the, the, that time didn't happen at all. We throw it all away. On the one hand, I, I can say, I don't, I don't think it's been worse for diversity, but I also don't feel like it's going to be way better. Yeah, I think there, there was a point, right, that, yeah, I couldn't attend because I needed to take care of my child during the online meeting. And although yeah. we provided the, the, the daycare, but I mean, online, to what extent this daycare can be yeah, helpful? I, I think that's probably a symptom of women being tasked with more childcare responsibilities in general. That is something that affects women if they're working from the office or if they're working remotely. But that's why we did childcare at, a, at the meetings, because we knew that it was preventing women from attending. Now, ideally, men would do 50% of the childcare, and then it wouldn't be an issue. But that's far from the reality that we live in. And it turns out it's quite difficult to change a culture. Yeah, I mean, in some regions, probably, yeah. I mean, Nordics is, for instance, known for being that's very true. good in it. But then there's such a big difference. So we go all, all the way to the east and south and... You're absolutely right. Just like some yeah, reflection. But I mean, like also, this is my first right meeting, actually. Welcome. Course, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I, I feel welcomed. But I'm, again, I'm in the tech community doing a non-technical job. Yeah. But I see a lot of brilliant women who are very active and being a very great participants of the community. And yeah, I just hope that it's going to continue this way. But... Just like personally reflecting, I was when I was like younger and thinking what I can do. I said, "Oh, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough to do math. Don't right. understand. Yeah, I'm better in art and you know, talking because we women, you know, are just you know like sort of self censorship and like the opportunity." I think there's a lot of self censorship. I mean, we all we pick up on these cues from our society. I, I've got two kids, and I was shocked when they were very young at how gender roles were enforced on them. And they they didn't fight it. It wasn't that they felt like they were, that they were being forced to do something that, that they didn't want to do. But I promise you, my wife, neither my wife nor I wanted like our three-year-old girl to be wearing pink dresses all the time, right? That was just something she saw and she loved and because that was what little girls were. Um, so. That those stereotypes start at a very young age and they're pernicious. They get into every aspect of life. And I think it's terrible. No matter how much we tell young girls that they can they can do the hard tech stuff, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily outweigh the voices of all of yeah. the rest of society saying, Yeah, that's a those are for geek boys. That's true, but also, I've noticed like kids today are so smart because they have the access to the internet. They're actually like, like questioning these things, like, yeah, why do I have to wear pink? I just some kids. It's are, true. Like, really, I shouldn't underestimate kids. You're right. It's like, wow, I wasn't like that when I was That's five. True. So I think this actually brought us really nicely to my last question, and I want to bring the quote of one of the attendees of the Women in Tech session. He thought that we need to be vocal about things that are not okay and maybe we can bring men as great allies in actually pushing the diversity. Do you think that the encouragement also should come from older men that are being here in this industry for such a long time? And uh, how can we make them actually be welcoming again? That's a good question. I I don't know. There's, there's always going to be a certain amount of resistance. So I don't know who said it, but the idea is that if you're in a 
privileged position, then equality seems like you're being oppressed, right? If you can, if there was only two people trying to uh, become a working group chair before, and now there's four because there's two women also trying to do it, you're going to think, that's really, that, why, where do these people come from? This is going to be really hard now, and I'm, I'm, I have to compete against twice as many people. And yeah, that's true. It, it is going to be hard for men a little bit. But I think, so it depends on how you look at it. My own personal view is that more ideas are going to get us better results, and we need to be confident enough that our culture and our civilization and we as people can get a benefit and that we can support everyone. It's not a, it's not a, a win-lose situation, right? Because, because women are empowered doesn't mean that men are disempowered somehow. But how do you explain that to someone who, frankly, has never really thought much about it and doesn't care yeah. because usually he is in a, in a good job. He's got problems. Everyone has problems, right? Like his router melts down because it ran out of memory and there's a chip shortage in China and now he can't get a new one. And he has to figure out how to do this when now there's a job shortage too and his, new, his, his engineers are all leaving. So he doesn't care about the problems of other people that yeah. aren't him. So how do you make people care about things that, that don't affect them directly? I don't know, but I personally feel motivated and I try to encourage other people to also be motivated because that's what we're here for, right? To help each other and to uh, make things better. It's a win-win, right? Yeah, make it a win-win. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shane. It was a great pleasure to have Thank a conversation you. with you. Thank you. It's been very good. Thank you for tuning in, and I really hope that you got something out of the conversation. And if you want to read more on these topics, either on Ripe Labs or beyond, there's plenty of links to follow up on down in the show notes. 